Nisambolovina are listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo or Koroi Hawkins. Coming up, one is Brisbane up to Pompeii, uh, and then the second route is Australia and Palau. Nauru Airline wins a tender for a new air route linking Brisbane with the islands in the Central and North Pacific. Also, every time you buy a local spice or a rum, you are helping a farmer inside a, a rural community. This is something that I'm, I'm most proud of. Pacific chefs impress in New Zealand with recipes showcasing ingredients from the islands and... Languages can become extinct when the speakers die out or shift to speaking another language. A Fijian linguist warns that negative narratives around Fiji Hindi endanger the survival of the language. Nauru Airlines is expected this month to resume air services linking Brisbane with islands in the Central and North Pacific that it halted for two and a half years due to COVID border closures in the region. The Pacific Airline was the successful bidder for an Australian government program that will subsidise the service as it relaunches. Australian Ambassador to the Marshall Islands, Breck Batley, says the Nauru Airlines won the tender by Australia's Pacific Flights program last week. This positions the airline to receive funding from Australia to support it during the initial phases of resuming a service that it had operated for decades prior to multiple islands closing their borders due to the pandemic. Joining me to talk more about this, our correspondent in the Marshall Islands, Gif Johnson. Bula, and welcome back on Pacific Waves. Gif, tell us more about these new flight options we'll soon have between the North and South Pacific. This is a a really great development that has come about now that the Marshall Islands reopened its border uh, in, in September. So things are... All kinds of things now are beginning to happen as a result of that. And one of the things is that uh, the Australian government has had what it's called a Pacific Flights program that it's been operating for for the last eight, well, year and a half, almost two years in support of providing air air, uh, coverage to islands that essentially lost air service during COVID, right? And, you know, so. So many air carrier. I mean, people just stopped flying, or the schedules got really bollocked up, and and very little service. And and so uh, that program has been supporting like literally hundreds of flights to all around the Pacific. Ten, uh, the ambassador, Australian ambassador Major told me they've been supporting flights to ten island countries since 2021. Anyway, long story short, they did a tender. Uh, to move it into a, this program into a new phase of actually providing sort of startup capital or startup money to uh, airlines that would run two routes. One is Brisbane up to Pompeii and linking uh, Honiara, essentially Brisbane, Honiara. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if actually if Honiara is in, but Brisbane, Nauru, Tarawa, Kiribati, Majuro and then Pompeii. And so, uh, and then the second route is Australia, some city, and Palau. And so they're trying to get air service into the north, essentially connecting Australia with the North Pacific. So Nauru Airlines uh, bid on this tender that, that that Australia put out, and they were the winning bidder. And it was announced last week that they will be supported for their route coming into the Marshall Islands. Now, at the moment, 
they're only coming to Majuro. They're not going to Pohnpei. But according to Australian authorities, they say when Air, now Airlines is ready, they will extend it to to include Pohnpei, which has been done in the past. Uh, so essentially, uh, in another week or so, they've said October 16, this service will get going. And and without this this service, what options are there like right now? So the, the Marshall Islands has only one other international air carrier, which is United Airlines. And it flies what is known as the Island Hopper route, which connects Hawaii or Honolulu and Guam uh, with the Micronesian area. So the Island Hopper essentially does exactly what its name implies. It goes Honolulu, Madro, Kwajalein, Koshirai, Pohnpei, Chuk, and then ends up in Guam and does the same thing back. Uh, and uh, we had Nauru Airlines and and Nauru Airlines in its various iterations, Air Nauru, our airline, and so on, uh, since the 1970s, right? I mean, they Nauru has been servicing the Marshall Islands for decades, uh, but it 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 stopped flying here in early 2020 when the border closed due to COVID. And they just, I mean, they couldn't bring passengers with all the rules. So they stopped flying. And essentially this is like they're in a startup mode and everybody acknowledges you start a new service, you're going to lose money initially. I mean, that's a problem, right? Because even though this service of Brisbane up to Majuro had had been a, a reasonably successful route because it had been being run for a long time. Uh, it hasn't been run now for a couple of over two years. So they're going to have to get it going. So the Australian, what the Australian ambassador in Maduro, uh, Breck Batley said to me is Australia's plan is to provide funding until the airline can get onto a sustainable uh, sustainable footing to do it in a commercial manner, and then they'll be on their own. Is is this a new type of funding? I don't think I've heard of anything like it before. Um, in terms of, I mean, kudos to Australia for this, but is this a a, a new form of funding that we're seeing? It's well, it it's new only in that the the specific flights program that Australia has been supporting has now. Move, it's now moving into a kind of a phase two because the phase one was during the first, say, two years of the pandemic, which was essentially people didn't have air service. So it was, you know, Australia flying in like they had several flights. They, they chartered Solomon Air, for example. So Solomon Air was brought in here four times so far this year uh, on charter basis bringing sometimes bringing some passengers who then went through quarantine managed quarantine and a lot of cargo covid related cargo and other things and that was like part of an island hop charter maybe they went to tarawa they went to other countries and did that so this is the service that the pacific flights program that australia has been supporting has been doing and what the australians are saying to me is now that borders are opening air service like air carriers are trying to get back to doing what they were doing before their priority is to get service linking the south pacific with the north this the south north service 
get get Australia reconnected with the Northern Pacific. And so that's why they they did this tender uh, tender to get these th- this new route going. Auckland's acclaimed restaurant, Homeland Food Embassy, has been home to five Pacific-based chefs who are demonstrating their culinary talents and bringing unique ingredients from the region to New Zealand's tables. Organisers behind the Kai Pacifica Festival say it's a celebration of Pacific cuisine and they are hopeful the event will create new markets and attract visitors to the region. Susanna Suisuiki reports. Pacific Trade and Invest New Zealand's Commissioner Glynis Miller says the festival is an avenue to elevate tourism in the Pacific, especially with COVID restrictions easing in most countries. National tourism authorities or those responsible for tourism are talking about diversification, are talking about different types of tourism from your mainstream tourists. So we think culinary tourism would be a good way to promote the Pacific Island countries. Nevanuatu chef Leonie Vusilai says the event will benefit rural communities in the Pacific region. Leonie says he's proud to represent his home country and the people behind the locally grown food products. Every time you buy a local spice or a rum, you are helping a farmer inside the rural communities of Vanuatu. So the economy goes directly into the rural communities of Vanuatu and this, this is something that I'm I'm most proud of. Cook Island chef Rangi Mitaere Johnson says with Pacific ingredients gaining more recognition overseas, she hopes communities in the region incorporate more of their own produce in their local cuisine. Yeah, I'll be taking back some of the flavours, food and flavours that some of the other people have brought to the table and, um, and just encouraging people to utilise more of the local things that we sort of take for granted. Just, just little things like purples falling on the ground. Yeah, utilise them a little bit more. The festival programme has also seen Pacific and Kiwi chefs create new meals made from Pacific ingredients, an exhibition for New Zealand trade buyers and a cooking masterclass with renowned chef Peter Gordon. Dui Ohu Mafi of Tonga says his culinary career of being a chef at Tano International Hotel and a caterer to the Tongan royal family wouldn't have been possible without his father, whom he cared for before his passing. Actually, uh, um, I look after my father for how many years? He was sickly and... The way I try to make something to for his appetite to at least take something daily. So, and after he passed away, I, I realized maybe this is my call. Born to an Italian father and Samoan mother, Dora Rossi says food is greatly cherished in both of her cultures, and that it was inevitable that she would carry on her parents' legacy of running their family restaurant. I was kind of born into it, as my mother and father had a restaurant in New Zealand when I was little. So, food is a really um, huge part of our culture and both cultures and you know food you do everything around the table whether you're Italian or Samoan um, all the decisions are made around the table and food is really a medium through sheer determination and setting an example for other young Fijian women in the culinary field, Losavati Sewale says the festival for her has been an eye-opening experience and is looking forward to sharing what she's learnt when she returns home. It's about sharing and you know um, and knowing each other's, knowing each other, learn from each other's culture. Yeah, different kind of uh, presentation and how they plate the, their food. Yeah, and working with the New Zealand chefs yesterday was amazing. To check out some of the updates from the Kai Pacifica Festival, head over to the Pacific Trade Invest New Zealand Facebook page.
A Fijian linguist warns that negative narratives around the Giramit language or Fiji Hindi, which describe it as a broken language, are erroneous and endanger the survival of the language. Farzana Gaunda, a direct Giramit descendant and a representative of Fiji on the UNESCO International Indentured Labour Route Project, says Fiji Hindi is often characterised as an inferior language to the Hindi and Urdu languages spoken in India and Pakistan. Dr. Grounder says this attitude towards the Fiji Hindi language amongst the community and those outside it are causing psychological impacts on the younger generation. As we mark Fijian Language Week and acknowledge Fiji Hindi as the second most spoken language in the country, RNZ Pacific reporter Rachel Nath speaks with Dr. Gounder, who begins by explaining the history of Fiji Hindi and why she considers it a language born in the Pacific. So Fiji Hindi developed during the indenture system. So I'll just give a little bit of background information about indenture in relation to the language. So the indenture system was a form of labor contract used during the 19th and early 20th centuries where people from India were taken to British, Dutch and French plantations around the world to work. And these were usually sugarcane plantations. Under the system, laborers were contractually bound to work for a period of five to ten years, and then they could either go home or remain in the country in which they were working. And the laborers were housed in compounds and provided with basic necessities, but they were also expected to work long hours, and they were often subject to harsh conditions, and a lot of research is happening in this field. And UNESCO has recognized the Indian indenture system, and This is because it saw the displacement of millions of people from India to other countries, Fiji being one such country. And Fiji was the last country, actually, to which indenture was introduced. And our system lasted from 1879 to 1920. And it was during this indenture period that a new language, which we call Fiji Hindi, developed in Fiji. And it was based on Hindi and Urdu and other languages such as Tamil and Telugu, were incorporated into this. And it became a common means of communication amongst the laborers. And, of course, it got passed down the generations and got to be used more broadly in Fiji. And today, the language is the first language for people of Fiji Indian descent. It has incorporated words from Fijian and English. And it's a common language spoken by people in Fiji. And I like to consider it a Pacific language because it was born on the plantations of Fiji and it is spoken by a community of people who have lived for generations in Fiji. And so it's it's right to say that Fiji Hindi, of course, in its, in its name, um, is uniquely to Fiji. Um, it's not the same with any other indentured um, laborers that went to the other places around the world. There are similarities amongst languages. It's a bit like explaining this would be like looking at Pacific languages. When you look at Pacific languages, like the Polynesian languages, you see that there are similarities. There are contexts in which languages develop that the languages change depending on whether they're surrounded by uh, other languages such as Dutch or French or English. So there are differences. But because their root is the same, as in the Indian languages of India, you can kind of understand and communicate with people from other indentured colonies from around the world. Now, just talking about 
the language and its existence. Do you feel that through your work, have you seen uh, the Fiji Hindi language come under the threat of extinction? Well, it's generally agreed that languages can become extinct when the speakers die out or shift to speaking another language, right? So this can happen for a variety of reasons, such as economic or political pressure, or simply because the language is not being passed down to new generations of speakers. So if the number of speakers of a language decreases to the point where it is no longer being used on a daily basis, it is considered to be at risk of extinction. So in the case of Fiji Hindi, we have an issue because there is no clear data on the number of speakers of Fiji Hindi. But we think that it is likely that the number is small and decreasing. And we must also remember it is the first language of a population of people in the Pacific. And as we know, Pacific communities are small. And there's particular concern for New Zealand, which is where many Fiji Indians live outside of Fiji. There is a danger that for the children growing up in New Zealand, Fiji Hindi will increasingly not be their first language for a number of reasons. And their language may become English. It's also not, of course, taught in schools. And this means that the language is in danger of not being passed down to new generations of speakers. And it is for these reasons that the language, I think, is at risk of extinction. And what do you think needs to be done to sustain the language? Well, there's a few different things that we could do. One is probably changing the narrative around Fiji Hindi. Um, there's a lot of narrative around Fiji Hindi, and some of it is not very positive. Uh, some of the complexities are that Fiji Hindi is seen as an inferior language to the Hindi and Urdu languages spoken in India and Pakistan, because people are not linguists, so they don't realize that Fiji Hindi is actually a separate language. Instead, people call Fiji Hindi a broken language. And you can imagine this has huge impact on our children. So when I ran a UNESCO-funded workshop in Auckland last year around Fiji Hindi with my co-researchers, Jennifer Janif and Dr. Nikit Shamin, we had workshop participants talking about how they are bullied and mocked in school for the language that they speak. And these are young people, and they're very passionate about their language, you know. Um, so as you rightly pointed out, Rachel, um, there's, there's issues that need to be addressed. So changing the narrative uh, would mean increasing public awareness of the language, its uniqueness, and we can do this through increasing educational campaigns, public forums such as this that we're having, um, other forms of outreach. Another thing that has happened recently is that linguists from around the world who study other indentured Hindi languages have come together, and this happened post-COVID, and we've developed a standardized Roman script because the languages are quite similar to each other. They may not be the same, but they're similar. And the idea is that we will be able to all write in our languages, just as we write in English, using that same script, write in our languages, and therefore increase our reach around the world. So our audience, the people who can read what we have written will dramatically increase. And this will hopefully have a huge impact on raising the profile of Fiji Hindi, um, hopefully increase interest amongst its speakers, 
and Jennifer Nickett and I actually have a book that is about to be published where people from the community have used the script to provide their thoughts in Fiji Hindi. And I hope to tell you more about it once the book is closer to publication. That's specific waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mothe Manda.